Uh, thank you uh, for going with the flow. And uh, I, it was one of the things I love about CF is the flexibility of this church and the, the willingness to just kind of try some stuff and change some stuff. Um, and uh, so thank you. Thank you for showing up and being here early and on time and, and all that for everybody, for all the Grace Place volunteers, for the hospitality team, the band, um, for all being here early. Uh, thank you for making this happen. So I think this is going to be very helpful and beneficial for our church and our community uh, moving forward. So uh, if you have your Bible, you can open up to um, Luke. Uh, Luke 23 is where we're going to be this morning. So um, I've kind of talked about it a little bit already, but this morning is uh, the first Sunday in Lent. And so Lent is a season built into the church calendar that has been uh, been part of church community and Christian community for long, long time. And really, it's a season of slowing down. It's a season of listening and responding to God's call to us to come and know him deeper. So it began last Wednesday with our Ash Wednesday service, and then it continues, as I said, all the way through Easter. And so Lent has traditionally been marked by three major uh, themes, fasting, prayer, and generosity. And so as you pursue, pursue any or all of those elements this year, I just want to encourage you and remind you that this season is not about punishing yourself, and it's also not about trying to earn God's favor. It is simply an intentional time built into the calendar to evaluate your life and see where have priorities maybe shifted, where have my, my values, my, my time, my energy, where have these things shifted in a way that regulates God to a secondary place. And this season gives us an opportunity to intentionally address that. Where are the places in our lives where we can let go of something to pick up more of Christ in our life? Um, so if you are interested in pursuing uh, some of those themes of Lent and, and just learning more about it, I did not grow up with Lent, and so it's something that I've had to learn and grow into. So if you are interested in growing more in, in this season, uh, if you go on our website, we have a whole page dedicated to resources, um, some articles. There's a Spotify playlist we made a, a year ago um, to, to help you that's kind of geared toward this season. A um, bunch of different things geared and help to helpful um, be helpful resources to you in that. And so um, along with that, as we are in this season of time, we are going to take a break uh, from John. We're going to pause John. We'll pick that back up in a few weeks, but we will stay in the Gospels uh, for these next seven weeks. And so um, we're just going to skip ahead, right? We finished off John uh, in John 2, right at the wedding of Cana, right as his ministry was getting started. So we're going to press pause there, uh, and we're going to fast forward all the way to the end. Um, there is a lot of emphasis placed on final words of people. What are the last things someone says before they pass away? For more famous people, we tend to record those things, and, and you can get lists, and there's whole books made of the, the last words of different famous and influential people. Bob Marley said, money can't buy life. Winston Churchill said, I'm bored with it all. Uh, I love Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde said, my wallpaper and I are fighting a duel to the death. One, one or the other of us has to go. And then he went. The final words a person speaks, it can reveal something of who they are. It can reveal a, a bit of their character and, and who they are in life. So like I said, we're going to fast forward to the final day of Jesus' life. Specifically, we're going to fast forward all the way to the final hours 
we're going to examine the final seven statements of Jesus that he speaks on the cross. Each of these statements is, has their own, um, they're also referred to as the seven sayings of Jesus. And each of them reflect and display the character of Jesus and the will and heart of God in what is the most intense and horrible of situations. Right? Jesus is up there suffocating, beaten, battered, his wrists and feet run through with nails, and he takes the time to speak. And as he speaks, he continues to do what he has always been doing on earth, teaching and revealing the character of God to us. And so, like I said, this morning we're going to start in Luke 23. I'm going to pray, and then we will jump in uh, to Luke 23. So please bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for this opportunity to gather in this community um, that at its core has a desire to know you deeper and to grow in a relationship with one another. Um, God, thank you for fun. Thank you for friendship and relationship. Um, thank you for giving us a place to gather and to um, be together and to be together with a common goal and purpose of pursuing you and knowing you deeper and more. Lord, as we enter into this season of time that you've provided for us, this intentional season of reflection and hopefully growth, Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us the areas of our lives where we need to let go of some things and loosen our grip on some things so that we can take up more of you in our life, so that we can hear clearer from you so that we can pursue you deeper. God, as we open your word this morning, as we study these final words of Jesus, God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see what you would have us to see this morning and ears to hear, minds to comprehend and hearts to believe and hands and feet to respond to what it is you have for us today. Lord, as I preach, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus, and in his name, amen. We're going to be in Luke uh, 23. We're gonna, I'm going to read, start in verse um, 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, this chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. I don't think we need to uh, catch up on the context here, but 
for those that might not have a Bible background or a church background, I'll give it to you, is that Jesus has been betrayed by one of his disciples, one of his close 12 uh, disciples, and he has been arrested even though he has done nothing wrong. He's arrested, and from there he is paraded from official to official, finally getting to Herod, who's kind of the leader of the area. Herod questions Jesus but gets no response from him. This quickly turns into a very sick form of entertainment for Herod and his guards as they begin to mock Jesus. Jesus is sent back to Pilate, who's kind of the local authority in the area, and he finally, after talking with Jesus, he comes back out to the crowd who is chanting, crucify him, we want him dead. Pilate says, I see nothing wrong with this man. I don't think he deserves death. Herod said the same thing. He doesn't deserve to die, but the crowds continue to chant, crucify him, and Pilate wants to appease the crowds, and so he decides to have Jesus punished. But this is not enough to appease the crowds, and so Pilate literally washes his hands and allows for Jesus to be crucified. And so there he hangs on the cross, and the first of the seven sayings of Jesus is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. These words reveal that Jesus intercedes for us. When we see this word, when we see this phrase, I think the, the question that jumps out in my mind is, who is the them that Jesus is talking about? When Jesus says, Father, forgive them, who is he talking about? Is he talking about the Romans? Right? The, the, Roman, the Roman soldiers who spent the night and morning beating and mocking the Son of God? They punched him and slapped him and spit on him. They took a whip with bone and metal at the end, and they hit him with it, and it ripped the flesh from his body. They took spikes and drove it through his wrists and his feet. They twisted a crown of thorns and jammed it into his head. He was beaten so badly he was unable to carry the cross all the way up the hill. Once he's on the cross, they gamble for the clothes that they ripped off of him. Are they the them that he's asking for forgiveness for? What about the religious leaders? This unholy alliance of Pharisees and Sadducees who worked together to get Jesus betrayed, arrested, and executed. Under the guise of protecting the temple and protecting Judaism, they conspired and lied in an effort to have an innocent man killed. Are they the them that Jesus is referring to? What about the disciples? Right, Each one of them at dinner the night before had told Jesus, Jesus, I'm with you to the end. No matter what happens, I'm not going anywhere. We are together until the end. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to abandon you. And then when the soldiers show up in the garden, when everything turns sideways, the disciples run to hide and protect themselves. Peter goes so far as to deny knowing anything about Jesus. Are the disciples the them in Jesus' mind? And if we're going to talk about disciples, Judas has to get his own category, right? Judas Iscariot sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He is one of the 12. He was there to see and hear and learn from Jesus and experience the ministry of Jesus firsthand. Just hours before Jesus says these words on the cross, Jesus is on his knees in front of Judas, washing his feet, and then Judas will go on to betray him with a kiss. When we stop and think about it, there are more than enough thems to go around. And we got to include us in that. You and I and all people have played a part in putting Jesus on the cross. Sin entered the world through the disobedience of Adam and Eve and has corrupted existence on all fronts, including our humanity. 
Paul says it in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no wiggle room on that all. It means all. We are all sinners. We have all fallen short. We are all by nature, as he says in Ephesians 2, by nature dead, Satan-following objects of God's wrath. That's the core. That's the DNA of us wired out of the box. It is a helpless and hopeless state. It is the problem all of mankind has had to deal with since Adam and Eve, the problem of evil, the reality that mankind is not inherently good or kind, and because of that, we are at odds with and on the other side from the, on the other side of the spectrum from the holy, righteous, perfect, good God who made all of everything and holds all of everything together. Our sin is a direct attack on the holiness of God and his perfection. Because sin ultimately boils down to us telling God we know better. I got this. I can handle this. I know what's best for me, so back off. And so if you're going to directly attack the creator of all existence, there's going to be consequences. Paul will say it later on in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. If you go against God, that's sin. Sin equals death. Sin is not minor. It's not, I slipped up. I made a mistake. I stumbled. It's just a little bit of sin, and you know what? It's better than it used to be. I got it more under control. It's just my little vice that I keep to myself, and it's not hurting anybody else. It's not a big deal. Your sin caused Christ to experience an untold grief and pain and loss. Your sin put Christ on the cross. All of our sin put Christ on the cross. We have equal share in the torture and death of Jesus. You are not any less guilty than the person sitting next to you. You are not any less guilty than the person who you think is the worst. Well, what about, insert horrible person's name there, I'm better than them. That in itself proves, no, you're not. We are all equally responsible. The grace and forgiveness experienced through Jesus was paid for at a price. That price was his life. When he experienced what he suffered through, it mattered and it was costly. And yet, as he hangs there suffering because of us, what is it that he is doing? He's praying to God for those responsible for his suffering. We placed Christ on the cross. It is our sins that held him up there just as much as the nails of the Romans, the hearts of the Pharisees, or the betrayal of Judas. And in Jesus' dying moments, as he faces the punishment and justice of God being poured out for all sin, for all mankind, Jesus prays and asks for forgiveness for us. He intercedes on our behalf. That's who Jesus is. That's what he does. He intercedes for us. What he's doing in this prayer is he's being himself and he's fulfilling yet another Old Testament prophecy that pointed to him. Isaiah chapter 53 talks about a suffering servant. This passage from the prophet talks about this suffering servant and there's all kinds of phrases that you'll be familiar with if you have a Bible background, especially in this time of year as we get closer to Easter. Despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief, despised and not esteemed, stricken, smitten and afflicted, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds we are healed. And then he gets down to verse 12, and it says, There I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. 
to intercede in the Old Testament, that word literally means to meet, to encounter, at times to interrupt or to act upon. It's an engagement, it's an interaction, it's an interjection into something. This one that's being described in Isaiah 53, who is Jesus, he acts on behalf of the transgressors, on behalf of the rebels, the enemies, the sinners, which we've already seen, that's you and me. I like the way Eugene Peterson wrote it when he, when he paraphrased it in the message. He said, he took on his own shoulders the sin of the many. He took up the cause of all the black sheep. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what he does. With his dying breath, he's stepping in for us. He's at work for us to help us and to save us. He's acting in a priestly role on our behalf. This role, this, this opportunity for uh, the people of God to serve one another in this role of priest, this certain line of people, is a role established to help and serve God's people. When they needed direction, when they needed someone to help them remember God, when they needed someone to help them engage with God, the priests served the people of God. But the system was flawed, right? The priests were not perfect. They had their own sin to contend with. On top of that, Hebrews 7 talks about the fact that priests were people, and people die. So they had to continuously be more and more of them just to compensate for the turnover of life. But Christ fulfills this role perfectly. He has no sin to contend for. The ability to help and guide and direct and serve us by giving us access to God permanently, he is able to do because he continues forever, it says in Hebrews 7. And because of who he is, it says in Hebrews 7, 20, 25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He interjects for them. He interjects for us. He pleads our case. To put it another way, and especially when Paul uses that word in the New Testament, Jesus acts as our defense attorney. It's his job to defend the guilty in regards to the charges against them, to prove their client is innocent and didn't actually commit the crimes. If Jesus is the defense attorney, that makes Satan the prosecution. He's the one trying to be, get us convicted as guilty, trying to get us punished and sentenced to hell. And he gives all the reasons why we deserve hell and punishment. He lists the facts and the evidence that prove we are guilty and covered in sin. And Jesus stands as our defense attorney and he says, 100% absolutely, they're guilty. We are guilty for all have sinned, right? He admits we deserve death. But justice has already been served. Christ died for us. We have the greatest defense argument, Jesus himself. If you have put your faith in Christ, you always, no matter what, have someone on your side defending you helping you, interceding for you, because Jesus is for you. John says it in 1 John 2, 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So, in the off chance you find yourself committing sin, who would do that? Remember, you have an advocate, an interceder the greatest advocate with the best of defenses possible. And he defends you not because he has to, not because it's his job, but because he loves you. He defends you by his choice because he loves you. He didn't end up on the cross by accident. It wasn't happenstance. He didn't fall into a nefarious trap concocted by forces too brilliant for him to overcome. 
No, he says in John 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus intercedes in his death and through his death by his choice because of the love he has for you and for me. Jesus intercedes for us. This phrase that he says, this saying in Luke 23, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. These words reveal that Jesus intercedes for us and then they reveal that Jesus forgives us. Even in his weakest, he has endured the pain and punishment of which he didn't deserve. He chose to live out the words he spoke in the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke 6, 27, it says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. I am uh, very thankful for my time in college. I went to Trinity International University and then I went back there for seminary and my time in Bible school and in seminary was wonderful, fantastic. I loved my time there. But the thing that about Bible school is that you talk with a lot of people who have aspirations to go into ministry of some sort, pastors, missionaries, something that has to do with, with ministry of some sort. And you talk a lot about the theory of how you are going to serve in the church or serve in the mission field. And it's a lot of theory about here's how to do this. Here's how to perform this thing. Here's how to do this. Here's how to hold this meeting or run this ministry. And it's great. It's helpful. But it's all done in this theoretical bubble of idealism. I had to write a paper at one point about what to do when you're the pastor having to do a hospital visit. I had to list out, like, here's my plan, here's the way I would do it, here's the theory behind why I, why I want to read these verses or pray this prayer. And like, I had to write, like, a, basically, like, so I had something that if I went into ministry, I could take that and run through it, and that's how I do a hospital visit. And that's good, except for, like, when you get into the room and the person's barely conscious, and the only noise is the ventilator that's kind of helping keep them alive. That changes the theory. Life is a lot messier than theory. This morning, we're in church. And we're in church on a Sunday morning, right? This is a sacred space. We're listening and, and singing theologically sound music. We're praying. We're reading scripture. We're we're listening to someone preach scripture. We're enjoying the community of believers in this setting at this time. Everything really is built around helping us to respond. Yes, I believe in Jesus. And Jesus, I'm with you to the end. And Jesus, you tell me to love my enemies. I'm going to love my enemies. You tell me to do good and care for those who hurt me. I'm going to do it. I, I got this for sure. It's nice to say in theory, and it's what we should believe, but what happens from Sunday afternoon until next Sunday morning at 10 o'clock? So you can claim to be a devoted Christian here. It's another thing to live like it when the moment is presented to you. And we have moments presented to us all the time. Some of them public, many of them private. You have moment by moment opportunities in our words, our thoughts, and our actions and relationships to choose to actually live like we believe the things Jesus said. 
But on any given week, in any given moment, we fall short. Right? We've already talked about it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You can claim all we, we can claim all we want here, and we can go through the motions of church life here, but feet to the fire in the moment, do you actually live like your faith matters? Do you actually live with the words of Jesus in mind? This is what Jesus is doing for us on the cross. He said, hey, I, I was teaching you this, and it wasn't just theory. It wasn't just a nice idea. It didn't just make for a nice sermon. This is what it actually looks like. This is what it actually means. And isn't it interesting, the very failure we know that we have and the sin that we have and the sin being committed against Jesus is exactly the thing he is dying for to make sure forgiveness is possible. I'm sure the Roman soldiers heard all kinds of yells and cries and words spoken from those hanging on the cross. I'm sure they heard all kinds of different things. I'm also pretty sure they never heard someone Say a prayer of forgiveness on behalf of those who put them on the cross. This prayer from Jesus to the Father is not about asking for the sins committed to just be ignored or forgotten about. Jesus is praying and asking God to convict hearts. Convict the hearts of the sins that have been committed. Let the conviction And let that conviction lead them to a faith in the very thing they were doing that was causing them to need forgiveness. Let their conviction lead them to a faith in what Christ was actively doing. God, forgive them for putting me up here. Convict them so that they might know I'm up here so that they can be forgiven. Christ is praying for my heart. He's praying for your heart to be softened to the reality of right and wrong and to lead us to repent and change direction. Even in our ignorance, right? Jesus says, forgive them for they know not what they do. Even for their spiritual blindness, Jesus is praying, for their choosing to ignore who I am, choosing to ignore the truth made available to them, choosing to ignore the very presence of God, God, forgive them. See, ignorance is not an excuse for sin. If it were, Jesus wouldn't ask the Father for him to forgive sins being committed under the guise of they know not what they do. The ignorance, the ignoring of the person and will of God imprinted on the soul of every person and on all of creation itself, that choice is avoiding who God is, and that itself is grounds enough for rebellion against him. And it needs to be forgiven, and in his dying breath, that's what Jesus pursues, forgiveness. It's at the very core of what Christ came to do, and the way he goes about Making forgiveness available is by dying on the cross as our substitute, paying the debt we owe so that the debt might be erased, forgiven. But his forgiveness is not something that is to be taken lightly, and it's something that we are called to live into and live in light of, because Jesus came to forgive. Paul wrote about it in 1 Timothy 1, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Peter says says likewise, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And even Jesus told people in Mark 2, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the ministry and work of Jesus, to come to earth, to live perfectly, die painfully, and rise victoriously over sin, death, and hell, and offer us forgiveness. And in doing so, he paid the penalty. He died the death our sin demands so that anyone and everyone who would put their 
faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ can receive that forgiveness offered by Jesus. God stepped in and made a way for us to have a right relationship with him. Not when we were most lovable or likable, not when we were at our best, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He stepped in. He interceded with his death on the cross and continues to intercede for us now. The shame and guilt and accusations from the devil, they are being dealt with and refuted by Jesus Christ himself. His counterpoint to all that the Satan wants to accuse us of is a simple one. It is the scars on his wrists and feet. He keeps them. The reminders of the love, compassion, mercy, and forgiveness given to us. God stepped in and made a way for us to have a right relationship with him by having Jesus die on the cross for our sins. The price has been paid. The wrath has been poured out. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. On the cross, with his final breath, he intercedes and forgives our sins. And in doing so, he calls us to go and do likewise. By giving us this new right relationship with God, we have a responsibility and a privilege to intercede for others as Christ has done for us. We have the right duty and responsibility and honor to pray for others. Don't leave somebody off your prayer list just because you think they got it all together. Because they aren't in some kind of obvious trouble. No, we have the chance to lift one another up in prayer. Pray that for peace. Pray for the shalom of God. Pray that we might be able to live faithfully in this world. We have been given access, the gift of access to God. The God of all existence. It's a gift that we have been given that we should not ignore. And so we can use that as a gift to pray for people. To lift others up to pray for people we know, to pray for our strangers, to pray for our city, to be a people who lift one another up. Paul says in Ephesians 6, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. God's people, pay attention. Stay alert. And as you are paying attention and staying alert and observing and engaging with this world, you will have no shortage of things to be in prayer about. Jesus spoke about the power of prayer in Matthew 18. I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Christ promises when his followers are united in prayer, praying in line with the will of God, those prayers are heard and received. James 5 tells us the prayers of a righteous person has great power in its working. We can pray for others and fight for them when they can't fight for themselves. The last few weeks in Grace Place, the Littles have heard of the story of the three people who cut a hole in the ceiling and they dropped a paralyzed friend down to meet Jesus, right? They couldn't get in through the door, so they climb up, they cut a hole, they drop him down. That guy was stuck. He physically couldn't get to Jesus on his own. He needed help and had friends who had faith enough to help him. You have people in your life who need you to be willing to do what you can to help them get to Jesus. And the thing you have available to you is the power of prayer, the access of prayer. God stepped in and made a way when there was no way. He didn't wait till we asked for it. He immediately made a way. Prayer is a gift and a power that we have available to us to lift and give life to those who need help. Christ intercedes for us and in doing so teaches us to do the same. 
That also goes for the forgiveness he gives us. We are forgiven, therefore we can forgive. Because forgiveness, is, there's a lot of misconceptions about what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. It can lead to that. Hopefully it does, but they're not the same thing. Just because you forgive someone doesn't mean you have to have a relationship with them or be in close connection with them. Sometimes it's not even possible, and sometimes it just won't happen. Forgiveness doesn't mean everything's fine with you, there's no hurt feelings. It doesn't mean all the hurt and pain is gone. Rather, it means that the bitterness within your heart, the desire for revenge or vengeance, that has been removed. The pain wasn't gone when Jesus prayed this prayer. The pain was still very real and very present in ways that we can never fully comprehend on this side of heaven. But Jesus, as he went through everything he did leading up to and at the cross, he himself didn't argue or fight back. He could have uttered a sound, just a thought, and angel armies would have showed up and wiped out everybody who was his enemy, and he chose not to. He, was clinging, he wasn't clinging to bitterness and anger or woe is me, but mercy and love and grace. Forgiveness acknowledges the pain and lets go of the bitterness toward the person who has hurt you. And the only way that can happen is if we trust in who God says he is. Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Ecclesiastes three seventeen. I said it in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Isaiah thirty three twenty two. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. Psalm 9, 7, and 8, But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with, up, with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. God is just and righteous and holy and good. Forgiveness is us trusting in all of who God is to handle and deal rightly with the wrongs of this world. Maybe we get to see it in our lifetime, maybe not until eternity, but we can take comfort in knowing that God will carry out justice. It's not for us to seek out vengeance and retribution. The world wants to rage against itself, but Christ came and taught and showed there's another way to exist in this broken world. We know God forgives. And we know that no one is outside of God's forgiveness. Amen that we weren't. And we too are called to forgive. To be a people, to be able to let go of the bitterness towards someone who hurts you and remove the guilty verdict in our own hearts toward them is an act of faith in God. Faith in his justice and his righteousness. And that's only truly possible for the person who they themselves have first experienced and understood what it is like to be forgiven. To experience the freedom and the removal of that burden. When we know that by grace, through faith in Jesus, the guilt, shame, anger, condemnation has been removed from us. When we begin to experience what it means that as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. In that sweetness, we too can show relief to others. This is not easy, and this is not one of those just, let's, in theory, yeah, that's a great idea. And it's not going to happen overnight. It is a faith and trust in God day by day, moment by moment in who he is. It's a daily trusting in God's control and power and his grace to us. And when we continue to carry it, because when we continue to carry around our hate and bitterness and we keep withholding forgiveness, it is a weight and burden that shackles us. 
it stops us from fully pursuing God in, the way, in what we say and what we do. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The writer is saying, look, life is hard enough. It takes endurance just to live and live well in a way that is glorifying to Christ. Don't make it harder on yourself by carrying these extra weights in your pocket. The writer says, get rid of that stuff. And let us run with our eyes looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That joy that was set before him, that thing that allowed him to endure the cross, was the chance for us to receive the, receive the result of it, the forgiveness of our sins and stepping into new life. Christ on the cross prays to God and in doing so teaches us and invites us to pray and intercede for others. Who in your life this week can you intercede for in prayer? Christ on the cross offers us forgiveness of sins through his death and resurrection. Who in your life do you need to offer forgiveness to? As we together enter into this season of Lent, may we do so with a heart of thanksgiving and joy for the intercession and forgiveness of Jesus on the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you made a way where there was no way, where there was rebellion and chaos. You sent your son Jesus to restore order and to bring us to you. God, the love and work of the cross, though it was messy and ugly, brings about new life. Lord, we pray that we would be a people who live into that new life here and now. That we'd be a people who know that we have received grace so we can show grace. We've received mercy so we can show mercy. We've seen and experienced Jesus interceding, interjecting on our behalf. And so we can be a people who intercede for one another. Who intercede for strangers. Who intercede for those who are hurting. And we can bring their requests their needs, their hearts to you in prayer, and you hear us and you respond to our prayers. Now we're a people who have been forgiven, whose debt has been erased, who no longer are confined to carry the guilt and shame that goes along with our sin. These things have been taken care of by Christ at the cross. God, help us to be a people who know that, believe that, feel that, and show that to the world. God, it can feel so, it can feel powerful to withhold forgiveness from someone. It can make us feel like we're in control of something, especially after we've been hurt. In reality, it's just keeping us from you. It's just slowing us down. It's just a distraction, an obstacle to pursue you deeper. God, I pray that you would convict us this morning, that you would bring to mind those whom we have withheld forgiveness from. 
and you would help us to trust in you and trust in who you are to be able to offer that forgiveness, to let go of that bitterness and hate, and to instead choose to trust in your grace and mercy, the same grace and mercy that you offered to us through Christ at the cross. Jesus, thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for going to the cross and dying for our sins. God, I pray that we would be a people who live like those who have been forgiven, those who have been offered new life, those who have received the grace and mercy that Christ gave because we have, so help us to live like it. I pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen.